Hi, it's Chris. Before I start with Ronan Farrow, who is excellent, by the way, I want to remind you, I've launched a free newsletter, and I'd love you to sign up for it at chrisreback.com. I think you'll like it. The newsletter delivers lots of excellent material that doesn't fit into the podcast. Bonus insights, backstories, show notes, key links, and more. I hope you notice that I do quite a bit of research for these conversations. The newsletter brings you behind the podcast. For example, in this week's newsletter, you'll get bonus insights from today's guest, Ronan Farrow, on when writing his new book, War on Peace, did his work on the Harvey Weinstein story interfere at all? Weinstein was a big donor to Hillary Clinton, so I asked Ronan if it came up in his interview with her. Trust me, you'll want to see his answer. And once again, signing up for the free newsletter puts you in the running for a free gift, a copy of Ronan's outstanding book, War on Peace, The End of Diplomacy and the Decline of American Influence. Just go to chrisreback.com to sign up for my new newsletter and a chance for the book. That's chrisreback.com. Thanks, and now let's get to the podcast. I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. Iran, North Korea, Syria, Brexit, Paris Agreement, China. Prime Minister Abe, Macron, Merkel, Xi, a fellow named Putin. At a time when U.S. foreign policy, when diplomacy itself requires as much clarity, coordination, and skill as it has in decades, ours has been going through, well, to put it diplomatically, a major transition. You know the headlines. Thousands of State Department positions unfilled, budget slashed, Tillerson fired. One day we have the world's biggest button. The next, we're ready to travel across the world for a summit with a leader who just months ago was a madman. How'd we get here? That's what Ronan Farrow has pieced together through exceptional storytelling and just plain reporting in his new book, War on Peace, The End of Diplomacy and the Decline of American Influence. Farrow did the work, talking with every living Secretary of State. And what he's pulled together is the story not only of the shrinking, but also the militarization of U.S. foreign policy. And to be clear, it didn't start with Trump. You might have heard of Farrow. He's a bit ubiquitous and, if you ask me, extraordinary. He just won a share of the 2018 Pulitzer Prize for Public Service. His articles in The New Yorker helped to uncover the Harvey Weinstein sexual abuse allegations and played an important part in fueling the Me Too movement. He's been a lawyer, diplomat, journalist, and a Rhodes Scholar. He worked in the Obama State Department as Special Advisor for Humanitarian and NGO Affairs in the Office of the Special Representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan, among other roles, some of which had shorter titles. And as you'll hear, he's also extremely gracious, which is not a bad quality, even if you're no longer a diplomat. But before I begin the conversation with Ronan, I want to remind you about our show sponsor, The Cook Political Report. The special elections roll on, so what's the latest with the 2018 midterm election map and that blue wave? What about other issues like tariffs, immigration, and guns? People who want to stay ahead of the curve turn to the Cook Political Report, and with good reason. For 30 years, the report has nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. People who make it their business to know politics make it their business to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. Just go to cookpolitical.com to sign up. That's cookpolitical.com. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Ronan Farrow. Ronan, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, it's May 2nd, Ronan, and I've never spoken with you. So I, I mean, I really don't want to be a jerk, but we're two days into the month. 
You've won no life-changing awards. You've <laughs> revealed systematic abuse on the part of no global icons. And, I mean, to be fair, as far as I know, you haven't even started working on the sequel to your current book that we're discussing, War on Peace. Well, I, I wouldn't count on that. <laughs> uh, okay, okay, corrected. He's got to got to get the facts right. Okay, so it's not as slow as a month as I thought it might be for you. I can make no comment on any ongoing reporting. <laughs> <laughs> I have, I have, uh, I have no comment. Okay, well, clearly, yeah, uh, cl- clearly, you're a journalist if you know uh, know that one. And uh, you know, uh, on the theme of doing a ridiculous number of things in a ridiculously short period of time. Um, so there's this press release from Bard College at Simon's Rock uh, from a couple of years ago when you were named a Rhodes Scholar in, in 2012. And it said mm-hmm. you graduated. I, I mean, I really, I, I thought, I can't believe I kind of hadn't come across this before. You graduated Bard College at 15, entered Yale Law School at 16. Sorry, we're, we're starting with the embarrassment portion of the conversation. <laughs> This is a hazing ritual. It, it, it is. Well, I promise we're going to get to the side. I think there's some something you've written that's marginally substantive, and I promise we'll we'll get to that. <laughs> um, so, you know, first, how is – and then I guess the youngest political appointee, sorry, on record um, at the time of your appointment at the State Department. Um, how is any of that possible? I uh, was a big nerd and <laughs> was bored with uh, – grade level work and uh you know was very fortunate to have you know a whole set of people around me who were i think mildly annoyed that i was so insistent on moving at that speed but also ultimately uh pretty empowering about it and you'll have to be the judge of how socially dysfunctional i am as a result <laughs> uh well you know many of the results speak for themselves including uh uh, obviously, the the you know the recent Pulitzer and uh, and this book. So um, let let's uh, let's get into it. I I, I won't. I, I'm tempted to talk about. Uh, uh, I watched a little bit of the commencement address as well, um, mm-hmm. where you really did. I mean, it was a great line that you uh, had about uh, when when you were getting introduced. You know, and from the White House. Ronan Farrow, and that uh, this, I guess, was back in 2011-ish, and folks yeah. would be disappointed, and your, your punchline was, well, look at it this way. Uh, you have to be disappointed that I'm not Barack Obama for 20 minutes. I have to be disappointed every single day that I'm not President Obama. It was a pretty good punchline. I still, still am. I'm, I'm sure you are. Um, so, so let's get into um, War on Peace, uh, the state of diplomacy, um, of foreign policy, and how we got mm-hmm. here. Um, and and uh, I'll get into the Trump attacks on diplomacy, and in, in, particular, in particular, your extraordinary interview with Rex Tillerson. Um, but in terms of framing, for those of us who might think that diplomacy died during the current administration, and while maybe that's true, we'll get into it a little bit, um, whether you know it's actually died – it's been slowly suffocating for many years now, hasn't it? I think that's right. You know, at this moment, you see a particularly acute example of the sidelining of diplomacy. I mean, really a, a gutting of the State Department, a purging of the kinds of negotiators and peacemakers that are so important uh, in keeping dangerous people out of the United States, in rescuing American citizens, in situations of uh, danger in cutting the deals that ensure that our 
brave servicemen and women aren't, uh, you know, the, the first to be thrown in the line of fire. Um, and, and we just don't have those people anymore because the Trump administration has been hacking away unceremoniously at the State Department. But you're absolutely right to say that it's not without precedent. And I think that's important because you can learn very clear lessons from history and even fairly recent history uh, whenever we cut the State Department. You go back to the, the Clinton administration, and over the course of the 90s, there were 30% cuts to diplomacy and development spending. That's roughly on a par with what Rex Tillerson was championing uh, over the course of the last year. And the results were pretty brutal. You know, we closed a bunch of embassies. We um, shuttered and folded into the State Department proper two government agencies focused on very important goals, arms control and information warfare, essentially, um, both things we could use in our confrontations with Iran and North Korea and ISIS. Uh, and, y you know, we were left somewhat flat-footed in terms of diplomatic capacity by the time 9-11 came around. And we have not learned that lesson. Over and over again, we do give short shrift to our diplomats. You called it earlier in the conversation the sidelining of diplomacy, which is in some ways uh, something of a diplomatic characterization. But there, there were two real themes, I think, that, that you address. One is the cuts, which you kind of just described, and also the militarization of our foreign policy and shifts mm -hmm. away from diplomatic – so did those two – how did those two become intertwined? Are they – what's the connections between them? And what's the timing when all of that started, do you think? Was it, was it coming out of the Cold War you know, and, and the peace dividend? Was it the post-9-11 – responses. I mean, that seems a little bit where the militarization may mm -hmm. have started. So, so talk to me about that connection, please, between the, the cuts to foreign policy and the militarization of our foreign policy. The militarization of foreign policy is inextricably entwined with the decline of diplomacy, if you will, uh, where we have sidelined and disempowered our negotiators and our peacemakers and our kind of regional experts, um, we have so explosively enhanced the power of the Pentagon that really, if you want to get anything done on the ground in place after place, the only way to do it is through the Pentagon. Um, you know, I saw that firsthand in Afghanistan, which obviously is a particularly militarized setting. Um, so you, you can, you know, take it with that grain, but um, it is striking how the work that was once done by development specialists, whether it's building a well or a road, um, you know, really now it is much more prominently and effectively, to be frank, um, done through the, the military. And more troubling still, and I think with more deleterious effects for America's place in the world, uh, when we, we make our policy decisions, Chris, when we uh, look at whether to escalate in Afghanistan, for instance, uh, it's very often only generals in the room. Uh, you know, a, a big tract of this book is about the shrinking space for diplomats in the policy process. And to your question about timing, I think that these are questions about the balance of power that we have always grappled with as a nation. Um, and you look at, for instance, 
the commentary in the press about the State Department during World War II. There's a lot of critiques of uh, diplomacy that are very similar to what we see during the Trump administration. People hand-wringing and saying uh, the State Department is outdated, it's a slow-moving bureaucracy, we've got to reform it. Um, and, and similarly, you know, uh, more authority being vested on the military side. Uh, the difference is that in that era, we actually went in and did reform the State Department and did re-empower it. And the result um, was, you know, a swath of diplomatic achievements uh, from, you know, the creation of uh, the World Bank to the creation of NATO uh, that, that we kind of still lean on today. So I, I think that uh, it is in the eyes of some of the many secretaries of state interviewed in this book, uh, something of an inevitability that 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 balance of power always skews uh, towards the military. But I also think history teaches us that we can balance more than we have in recent history. And you're absolutely right to say that this problem has deepened this imbalance of power uh, since 9-11 in a huge way. So I want to ask you about the secretaries of state. First of all, how in the world did you get every living secretary of state on the record um, for this book? Talking to you might be the singular thing that all of them could possibly agree on. (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, Chris, I I can be very annoying and persistent. And, uh, you know, once I start calling, I kind of don't stop. (laughs) Anyone involved in my reporting can probably testify to that. Uh, they were incredibly gracious to talk to me and they certainly didn't have to. And I think that each and every secretary of state, uh, has a moment of unexpected candor in this book. Um, you know, and, and these are, uh, public servants who don't give a ton of interviews in all cases. You know, you don't hear from George P. Schultz, who's 97 now, um, every day. And these are also people with complicated legacies and um, people who feel legitimately in some cases a lot of criticism, but also who I think to a one bring a lot of insight to the table and a lot of experience to the table. Uh, And overwhelmingly, they are very concerned about what is happening now and the current state of diplomacy. So that that was what I wanted to ask you. Who who would you characterize as maybe the most concerned uh, of where we are today? Well, I think a lot about Colin Powell, who is very uncensored and frank in this book, um, for which I, I am grateful. Uh, and, you know, he is a fascinating guy to talk to now for a variety of reasons. Obviously, a, a complicated legacy with the role he played during the run up to Iraq. Um, and he's very self-reflective about that. Uh, but also a, a guy who harkens back to a very different era of uh, political decorum and who cared profoundly about the workforce of the State Department and the brave men and women who serve as diplomats around the world. And I think for him, it's quite devastating to see the way that workforce is being denigrated and shortchanged. And, you know, he said, uh, we are ripping the guts out of the State Department. Uh, And he described it as mortgaging your future. And I think that that's pretty fair, because we will pay the price for years and years to come for the uh, evisceration of the, the current uh, appointees at the State Department um, and the career foreign service officers there, but also even more so for the drying up of the flow of talent into the State Department, the people who would be the ambassadors in 10 years, in 20 years. And how about the the, the militarization of 
diplomacy and foreign policy and how that really escalated under him. I mean, it was so, it, it, you know, it, it, it was ironic, and I wonder to what extent does he feel regret or responsibility or no, is he kind of just fine? But here you had a military man as Secretary of State – and yet, during that time, right, who clearly believes in the power of diplomacy, um, mm -hmm. and yet that was when Cheney, that was when you know Condi Rice, um, and, and and that was when, in a sense, he, it's not fair. The, the phrase that's coming to my mind is, "Did he get played on the WMD?" That's not. That's surely not a fair characterization. But but he got the the, the main way in which he got leveraged. Let's say by. Bush by Cheney mm -hmm. was to give the speech to the UN saying, you know, putting his credibility behind there's WMD, which then got us into, you know, the military situation in Iraq. Did, did you feel anything from him around his personal role in not being able to slow down the militarization of diplomacy while he was in office? He talks very frankly about the succession of strategic disasters in Iraq. And, you know, I'm very careful not to oversimplify any of these trends that we're talking about. Um, you know, I, I think that all of this is informed by a complicated background of personal relationships and personal politics. And, you know, he, not unlike Rex Tillerson more recently, uh, was very much immersed in, uh, you know, internecine warfare with White House officials and with uh, Rumsfeld and, you uh, you know, he talked about, and this is in the, the book, his battles with Cheney and the instances where, you know, he would be the last to learn that, for instance, we were pulling out of the Kyoto Protocol. Um, you know, I need to race over to the White House and get there just in time, he thought, and then have Condoleezza Rice say, you know, at the time in her role as NSA, uh, so sorry, you're too late to do anything about this. Um so, you know, it, it's yet another instructive example of uh, what happens when we allow our State Department to be shut out and uh, when we sideline the expertise within that department. You know, he describes in those cases really chafing against the fact that his mandate was taken over by others in the administration and that he wasn't able to make the experts working under him heard. Could we talk about Robin Raphael? When, when you yeah. when you first introduce her, I hated her. I, I was like, <laughs> "Who are you to talk to Ronan that way?" And of course, at the end of her story, I felt empathy and sadness, and yes. frankly, um, shame. Um, tell me about Robin Raphael, and how, how do you feel about her now? She's got a real arc, doesn't she? Yeah. Yep. Well, she in the hands of a storyteller, she sure does. Yes. She, you know, she, like so many of these colorful figures across War and Peace, um, is complicated. And I, I think she's a, a, a really instructive lens through which to view some of these problems and the profession of diplomacy in general, because, you know, she embodies some of the critiques of diplomacy. So, uh, so quickly you know, tell me, give, give, give the, the quick story, what, you know, her role in, in, in Pakistan, you know, who she was and, and then that narrative um, hearing it Robin Rafel was a career diplomat um, of many, many years at, who served as uh, ambassador in Tunisia and assistant secretary of state at one point. 
and, uh, you know, went to dangerous places and, and served in thankless roles, as diplomats often do. Um, and, and from an early point in her career, spent a lot of time in Pakistan uh, and became very enmeshed in society there, was, you know, well-connected in sort of elite circles in Islamabad. And uh, towards the end of her career, she came back into government um, at the same time that I did during the Obama administration uh, to oversee assistance uh, to, to Pakistan. And she and I kind of clashed. I was this annoying, you know, kid diplomat who came in to work for Richard Holbrook, who was our envoy to Afghanistan and Pakistan at that point. Uh, and she embodied a kind of entrenched set of relationships that we once had with Pakistan and increasingly don't. Uh, and I highlight the good and the bad of that. You know, I was uh, the little guy at the bottom of the pecking order uh, charged with liaising with human rights groups. And, you know, she really did not want to hear about extrajudicial killings by Pakistani forces and a number of sensitive human rights topics. Uh, she called that, you out on it. She she told you yeah. to, you know, be quiet. Yeah. And, you know, I, I obviously I, I quote her in this book extensively about her current feelings. And she kind of um, disputes the idea that she was dodging uh, any kind of accountability on that. But, you know, a lot of her colleagues did talk about the fact that she didn't welcome views that were critical of the Pakistanis. That said, the deep relationships she had there and the old fashioned kind of schmoozing um, and, you know, working of counterparts in the Pakistani government for information, um, that's a valuable skill set. And as the relationship with Pakistan became uh, more and more transactional, it's always been to an extent transactional, but this um, you know, really reached a nadir in the years after 9-11, uh, it was very apparent how much we needed that skill set and how much we lacked it. And her story is particularly colorful because, as you alluded to, uh, she really lost everything as a consequence of people not understanding this profession anymore. Uh, she, uh, a number of years after I had those conversations with her in Islamabad, uh, ended up on the front page of every newspaper in the country at the heart of an espionage investigation. And, you know, I, I look at in War on Peace where that came from and uh, what it meant for her life. It was extraordinarily devastating and, uh, you know, really resulted from uh, a comedy of errors um, and a, uh, a succession of misunderstandings of what it was that she was doing for our country. Ultimately, federal prosecutors dropped dropped the case, dropped everything. She lost her ability to work, I guess, to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. Spent, I think mm -hmm. you said, about a hundred thousand dollars on legal fees. Daughter, one of the daughters, Alex, I think the name was. She has two daughters, mm -hmm. but one of them you talk about um, really seemed to struggle, which obviously any child would. Um, a, a real, uh, you know, an unbelievable taking down, I guess, of someone who had given her life to American diplomacy. That's right. You know, she is a, a true public servant. Yeah. Uh, and while I, I think, you know, her story crystallizes many of the ways in which, particularly in this hyper-militarized environment that I'm talking about, diplomacy can prop up the status quo in ways that leave something to be desired. She also embodies, you know, the, the best of what that kind of old school relationship building can bring to the table. And there is no longer space for that. 
more and more. And she suffered the consequences in a way that was truly devastating. So so let's talk about that. No more space for it. And, and I've got two areas that I want to ask you about both of you. I want to ask you about this and, and then a, a quick question on your New Yorker reporting that won you the mm-hmm. Pulitzer. Yeah, both topics you could talk for 30 to 60 minutes on, but to be respectful of your time, we'll, uh, I, I will, short answers. I I'll know. Come are, back. I'll come I, back. Yeah. Okay. You're, uh, you're, you're very gracious. Um, you called, uh, Rafael or somebody called Rafael, um, the last diplomat kind of, was she the, the last diplomat? Um, that was is, actually my colleague at the New Yorker, Adam Entus, was it, one of the authors on a, uh, a wall street journal at the profile, which is where he was at the time. Um, that used that headline. Got it. Okay, thank you. I, uh, I, yep, I thought it was, uh, I forgot where, where you had uh, credited it to. Um, is Trump now the last diplomat? It, it, it seems like he conducts foreign policy as his own Secretary of State. Um, I mean, whether it's with, you know, on the personal front with Abe or Macron or Merkel and even the way dealing with Xi and uh, obviously Putin, you know, the, the, our, our national stands on Iran, you know, North Korea, Syria, you know, Paris Agreement, it it's so it feels so top down. Um, is it? I'm careful in War on Peace not to oversimplify the case. Um, there's a bunch of things going on here. One of those things is that we have a sui generis president here who is hooked on Twitter and completely uncensored and unpredictable. Uh, and I think you're correct, is uh, very top down in his leadership style. Um, you know, not everyone can predict or control him. And uh, he throws a lot of curveballs. Some of those tactics may well have a place in hardball diplomacy. Um, but then there is also this backdrop of this highly eroded diplomatic capacity and this deepening disregard for expertise. And the the current presidency illustrates very acutely the perils of that backdrop. Um, You know, you take, for instance, this mooted meeting between Trump and Kim Jong-un, where absolutely that could be a good thing, theoretically. But also, there are a lot of reasons why we have avoided that in the past. Um, You know, there's a real risk you get played when you deal with the North Koreans. And there's a long history of diplomacy in the region that I chronicle in War on Peace through the lens of some of the the characters that that led those efforts. Um, And, you know, while those efforts were uh, not completely successful, obviously, they also weren't complete failures. There were inroads that were made that we could be building upon and that were not. And I think, you know, what the the experts involved say about this current situation is time will tell. And the risk is that right now we, we just have the curveballs. We are stabbing in, in the dark. And uh, if you don't embed those efforts in a longer-term strategy that's carefully considered, that takes into account all of the pressure points and the history and what they've lied to us about before and what we should and shouldn't concede on, um, you, you run the very real risk of just legitimizing them as a nuclear power. So I use that as an example to, to answer the, the question. You know, I, I think that, yes, this president is unique in some ways, and that's part of what we're witnessing now, um, but also 
now more than ever with that unique presidency, it really illustrates the felt need for a strong core of experts and negotiators, um, you know, to to mitigate the risks of that kind of leadership. And Ronan, to, to close out on the reporting that you did that earned you uh, a share of that Pulitzer Prize, um, you've worked as an activist, I would say, you know, for 15, 20 years at this point. Well, maybe not 20, 15 years, certainly, since the early 2000s. I mean, you were doing work with UNICEF. And and, and what is what's your what does it feel like? What do you what is your own view of the role that you've gotten to play um, as part of the Me Too movement? Is there is it a surprise? Is it a satisfaction? What does it feel like to having been an activist on a range of issues for so long um, to see one of the things that you've you know spent time on uh, you know become such a uh, a worldwide movement? So I fight with Tarana Burke, who is incredible and is um, you know sort of one of the, the mothers of the Me Too movement. She created that, that Me Too hashtag and has done wonderful community organizing and, and advocacy um, about this, this term activist, which, you know, I, I would only be honored uh, to assume, but I also think is not really accurate to describe what I, I'm doing now because I had a very uh, narrow band of interaction with that movement, which was just to tell stories with as much rigor and accuracy as possible. And to regard every claim with skepticism, but also make sure every claim was heard, which they really weren't be, being heard on this issue of sexual violence. You know, for years and years and years, uh, these particular claims about Harvey Weinstein and the broader plight of survivors was veiled in silence. And uh, I, I am just profoundly grateful uh, to every source and to everyone who embraced this reporting, uh, as I survey what's going on now, I am, um, you know, more optimistic than I've ever been on this issue. There's still a long way to go, but people have been incredibly brave in stepping forward, uh, one after another. And I, I hope that continues. Ronan, thank you. Thank you for your time. And thank you for, uh, the reporting and, and the writing. I didn't even get to talk about the, 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 great storytelling the quality of the writing um it, it's just it's uh you know the, the new yorker stuff as well but war on peace is just a great read so uh thank you on all fronts thank you chris i really appreciate it that was my conversation with ronan farrow want more from ronan a reminder to sign up for my new free newsletter at chrisreback.com it has bonus insights from ronan on hillary clinton and how his harvey weinstein reporting might or might not have affected their interview plus Sign up and you'll get a chance to win a copy of his book. My thanks to Ronan for the conversation and you for listening. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon. Mm-hmm.